So good to be again in the house of the Lord and to offer up worship and praise to one who alone is worthy of our exaltation and praise and adoration. I'd like us to open our Bibles back to the uh, book of Philippians this morning, Philippians chapter 4, remembering our studies in this wonderful love letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Philippi during his first imprisonment. You'd think that the Apostle would be moaning and groaning and complaining about his circumstances, but no, 17 times in this short letter, he's using the word joy or rejoicing in the Lord. This morning, I would like to look for a little while, in a brief way, at the fourth chapter of this letter, and we want to title our study, Learning Contentment. Learning Contentment. Where do we find our contentment? The word in the Greek language is interesting, and it is derived from a word that means to be satisfied, to be sufficient. When we speak about Christian contentment, we're talking about a sense of satisfaction and sufficiency that can only be found in Christ alone. But the question still arises, is contentment a part of our natural makeup, our natural being? Are we by nature able to be content? The answer to that is clearly no not only from the scriptures, but also from our personal experience. Contentment is, uh, is something that can be very elusive as we live in a broken and fallen world. I find it interesting that the apostle said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain, something that should be pursued. Something that should be learned. In that same chapter in verse 8, the Apostle Paul said, Having food and raiment be therewith content, satisfied, uh, seeing the sufficiency of the bare necessities that God has bestowed upon us. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, Paul writes, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have, for he saith unto us, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. I think about that in terms of something David said in Psalm chapter 37 and verse 16. He said, A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. You see, there's something countercultural about our perspective on contentment. And the Apostle Paul writes in this chapter, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. Now, some would say that that state uh, under consideration is Mississippi. Others would say Tennessee. 
but he's not talking about a physical state in a geographical context. He's talking about a state or condition of our life. And Paul said, I have learned some things about Christian contentment. And he delineates a path in this chapter to how he came to learn it, how he came to know true contentment and joy in every circumstance. In this chapter, it begins with therefore. Now, when we read therefore, we better understand why the therefore is therefore, right? We need to understand what he's talking about. He's, he's, he's continuing the context of a Christian life and how that it revolves around the imminent return of Christ. We're living in the daily hope and the constant reality of the certainty of Christ's second coming. Christ is coming again. And he closes chapter 3 by referring to the change that is about to take place at that moment in time. He's going to change our vile bodies, these bodies of humiliation, these broken bodies, these sinful bodies. He's going to change them and glorify them and make them like unto the very Son of God. And, and Paul is living in that consolation. He's living in that hope, that blessed hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he closes the chapter by saying, when he comes... You need to understand that he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. All things are under the power of Christ. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1. My brethren, dearly beloved. I, I, I enjoy his use of that expression. It reveals his deep affection for the church. It, 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 it is something that uh, God has given him and entrusted to him. And uh, he's not only loving the church, but the church is loving him. He says, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for. Notice that expression, long for. It comes from a Greek term that means uh, deep pain of separation that has occurred. A longing, a, a longing to see the separation stopped and fellowship enjoyed once again. He says, you know what you are? You're my joy and my crown. The word crown there is Stephanos, the victor's crown, the laurel. The, the Greek uh, runners would have a, a, a laurel placed upon their head when they'd win their race. He says, that's what you are to me. He says, I want you to stand fast. I, I, I want you to be um, established and, and firm in your commitment uh, to Christ. The expression here is a firm resolve. He says, I don't want you to be wishy-washy. I don't want you to be cream puffs. I don't want you to fail in fulfilling the very design for which you were created as salt and light in Christ. I want you to be who God called you to be. This is a military term. And he uses it again later in this chapter because it, it, it takes discipline. You know, this is Memorial Weekend in our nation. And, and I, I heard on the radio that it has been calculated that over 1.3 million men and women in our military have given their lives so that we would enjoy the freedoms that we now enjoy in America. 
And I think it's fitting for us to never forget that sacrifice and never forget that freedom isn't free. It cost 1.3 million men and women their lives to defend the freedoms that we today enjoy. I think about that in the context of the Christian soldier. There have been many Christian martyrs that have not surrendered or not compromised with the world or the devils in the world, but have literally laid down their lives for the privileges that we today often, often take for granted. He, he says, I want you to stand fast as soldiers of the cross in the Lord, my dearly beloved. He says in verse 2, uh, let's read verses 2 through 5, I beseech Yodius and, uh, and beseech uh, Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other of my fellow laborers whose names are written in the book of life, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, these five verses that we've just shared with you compose the first point we want to make. He is referring to the presence of God with his people in time. Now, brothers and sisters, we recognize that life is so short. It's so brief. It's just a little journey in res with respect to eternity. And what we are doing is living between two points. We're, we're living between the already and the not yet. We have already been given so much in Christ. We have already come to know a, a portion of the truth of God's word. We've already begun to understand the power of believing prayer. We understand the benefit of the gospel being taught or preached or uh, taught in our churches and in our homes and in our communities. We, we, we've begun to, to understand that. And we have some of those things already. But... There is a blessing beyond all blessing that we're not yet embracing. So we're living between the already and the not yet. And what Paul is calling us to this morning is to learn about contentment. How am I going to do that? Paul, would you teach us how to learn to be content in whatsoever state I find myself in this morning? That's not as easy as it might sound. The first point we want to make is to remember the presence of God among his people. Now, he's not just among us, but through the Holy Spirit, he actually indwells us. And we need, as Christian soldiers, to stand fast in the strength that we, des uh, that we derive from the entrance of and the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to my mind that the only uh, negative thought 
that the Apostle Paul has in the whole epistle is right here in verse 2, and he mentions two of the chief women in the church at Philippi. Some preachers would even uh, pronounce the names of Euodius and Syntyche as Odorous and Tacky. These two women obviously were an important part of the early church in Philippi. Perhaps even these were women that gathered with Lydia in the river uh, praying uh, before the Apostle Paul found them there in Acts chapter 16, verse 13. He says, I'm, I'm beseeching, I'm urging or appealing or earnestly entreating these two key women in the church to get along with one another, to have the same mind with one another. And he says, I'm, in, I'm also entreating uh, the, uh, uh, my true yoke fellow, which is a minister in the church at Philippi, to help those women which labored with me in the gospel. And brothers and sisters, I realize that we, we don't believe that the Bible teaches that elders in the church should be women. That is, a, that is a position in the church that should only relate to men. However, that doesn't mean that there's not a work for women to do in the church. And I'm not just talking about the preparation of food. I'm talking about in a spiritual context. Women should be allowed to pray. Women should be allowed uh, to minister to one another in ways that men cannot minister to another woman. The Apostle Paul said in the book of 2 Timothy that the aged women should teach the younger women. See, see, they should be teachers of good things, teachers of loving their husbands, teachers of uh, principles that adorn the Christian gospel. And there were those in the church of Philippi in the first century. And he says to Clement, who is a minister in that church, he says, I want you to assist them in what they're doing to help the church. He says, and also Clement, we don't know much about Clement, but we know that he was a servant in the church, of course, and other fellow laborers. Do you see this? Do you see how they're not a one-man show? Do you see that? They're fellow laborers. They're yoke fellow. Do you understand the, the meaning of that word means uh, uh, comes from two oxen that are yoked together to pull a plow or to pull a burden. That's, that's a great image of the joint ministry of the local church. We're in this together, you see. And he says, and I love this part of it. He says, I want you to remember that your names were written in the book of life. Your names are a part of the book that God wrote even before the foundation of the world in which he inscribed the names of every child of grace that would ever be born in the world. Can you imagine that? In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, remember when the disciples came back after their uh, going out and preaching the gospel and, and, and healing and, and um, casting out demons? He says, rejoice not that the demons were subject to you, but rejoice the rather that your names are written in heaven. Now that's a good thing for us to remember, is it not? 
Our names might not be written in the uh, the uh, accolades and the the book of prominent men and women in our nation and world's history, but there's something more significant than that. Our names are written in the eternal Lamb's book of life. Now, to me, that's a marvelous thing. In fact, I believe Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 is referring to that same book. And remember in our studies of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 17, verse 8, chapter 20, verse 12, the apostle John is rejoicing in the reality of that book that has the names of all the elect family of God. That's why he says in the next verse, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Because nothing that we suffer in this time world is worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Hallelujah. Romans 8 verse 18. So we're rejoicing in the presence of God in our lives. He says, let your moderation be known unto all men. That word moderation means gentleness, graciousness. Listen to this. Forbearance. Sweet reasonableness. I like, the, I, I like those definitions. I, he says, let your moderation be known unto all men. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. This is referring to the presence of the Lord, uh, 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 the presence of the Lord in the lives of His people. The Lord is at hand. Now, sometimes that's referring to the second coming of Christ, that, that His uh, coming is imminent. It's at hand, as it were. But other times, when He says it's at hand, He's speaking of the uh, presence of God in the midst of his people. How is it with you this morning? Are you living and enjoying the presence of God in your life? I believe he's speaking of the nearness of God to each one of us. The nearness of God to his people, not only by the indwelling of the spirit, but God's taking notice of your affliction. Did you know that there's nothing that you and I will ever suffer in this world, that God is not with us in that, that God in, in, in his love and in his care, remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your cares upon him, for why? He cares for you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to know that God is a very present help? In time of trouble. There's all kinds of troubles that we endure in this world, isn't there? There's all kinds of sickness. There's all kinds of doubt. There's all kinds of opposition and persecution. There, there's all kinds of uh, confusion in our world. But isn't it wonderful that the clarity of this promise is to us that God will never leave us nor forsake us. He will always be with us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So we're rejoicing in that, you see. And that's the foundation of what begins our 
contentment with where we are, with what we are, and with how we are in this present world. So we are living in God's presence. Number two, point number two, we want to understand what Paul means by the peace of God. Not just the presence of God, but the peace of God. The word, uh, the word arete in the Greek means the inner tranquility that is disposed in the soul. It's something that is different uh, from uh, happiness. Uh, it's, it's something that is different uh, from what we view uh, carnally as joy uh, in the world. You know, uh, I'm always happy uh, when I can... Um, when I have the circumstances around me that uh, induce happiness. If, if everything's going smoothly, I'm happy. But if everything's going bad, I'm sad. Well, the peace that Paul is talking about, the arete, is not dependent upon circumstance or condition. It's a gift from the very Spirit of God, Galatians chapter 5 Verse 22, he's talking to our hearts right now. He says in verse 6, are you with me here? Uh, we're going to read verses 6 through 9 for our second point, referring to the peace of God. Listen to this. Be careful for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep, and that's a garrison term, shall guard as a soldier your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He says, finally, brethren, there's eight points here. There's eight things here. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, um, and uh, uh, praiseworthy. Think on these things. I believe that what the Apostle Paul is pointing us to is the things that produce that peace, the things that enhance that peace, that lean upon that peace. You know, he says first, be careful for nothing. Do you, do you understand what he means by that? Do you understand the Anglo-Saxon uh, definition of worry? You know, that's an Anglo-Saxon word, and it means literally to strangle. I'm going to tell you something that you may have never even thought about. Worry is a sin. Worry is a sin. Because what it's doing is challenging God's right to govern my life. I become dissatisfied with what God has brought into my life. I am worrying. I, I believe that worry can strangle hope. It can strangle confidence. It, it can strangle um, uh, success. So we're, we're commanded not to, not to worry. Don't worry. You, you know, in our study of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said that we should take no thought for tomorrow. In other words, we shouldn't be so consumed about our uh, thoughts about tomorrow that it destroys our productivity and peace today. 
But we're all guilty of this. I'm telling you. We're guilty of this. I know people that are worried because they don't have anything to worry about. Have you ever met folks like that? I have. I'm, I'm telling you. It's amazing to me. But the Word of God says, be careful for nothing. That what, what we're doing, we're, we're casting all of our confidence and faith in God. He is our peace, you see. He is our consolation. So the Apostle Paul is saying, I don't want uh, you to live a life uh, in such a condition that your goodness and your witness of Christian doctrine and truth is strangled by your attitude. The word careful there is a Greek word that literally means to be anxious or to have anxiety. And I'm going to tell you, it's a compound word. It's a compound word that means to tear apart. Did you know that? When we're anxious, when we're overcome by worry, we are torn apart. We're torn apart from our faith. We're torn apart from our hope. We're torn apart from our productivity and our success. So he says, I don't want you to live life that way. Be careful for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. He's calling us to be a people of prayer, to pray in, uh, in season and out of season, to pray without ceasing, to live a life of total dependence upon the grace and empowerment of God. That's where peace comes from. He says, if you will do this, if you will live a life of constant and consistent prayer and, and praise, um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this a sub-point. A, if you don't mind. Right praying. Right praying. We need to pray right. Now, somebody says, well, all prayer is right, Brother Jeff. No, it's not. If we were to take the time this morning and go to uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we could do a contrast. Because there were wars among the brethren in the church in James' day. And, and by the way, the church that he's writing to is uh, Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem. He's the pastor at Jerusalem. And he's writing uh, his proverbial letter to them. And he says, you know, when you're praying, you're, you're, you're asking amiss. You're, you're asking God to approve what you want rather than you approving what God wants. How many of us do that? How, how many of us will pray in such a way as to ask God to put a rubber stamp on what I want? Rubber stamp on what I want to do. Rubber stamp on where I want to go. That kind of prayer. I talked to a man one time that was having, he, he, he was an addict. He was addicted to Gibson's chocolate donuts. And he confessed it. And he gained about 40 pounds over a 10-year period of time. And the doctor told him, you're going to die if you don't lose some of that. And he said, I will. And he swore that he would never try, he would never walk inside that Gibson's Donut Center ever again. And you know, he did real well for, I mean, several months. That man lost about 30 pounds. He looked good, felt good. And finally, he, 
came and he says, I'll tell you what. I asked the Lord. I'm praying, you see. I asked the Lord. I said, Lord, I've done so well for these many months, and I've lost all of that weight for these many months, and now I'm asking you to give me a sign. If there is an empty space in front of the door of Gibson's Donut Shop, I know that you're okay with me going inside and getting another donut. And he said, wouldn't you know, after three times around the block, there was a space. See, a lot of us are like that. A, lo a lot of us uh, are not praying rightly. But the Apostle Paul says, I'll tell you how to pray rightly. I'll tell you how. With supplication and with thanksgiving in our hearts, we make our requests made known unto God. And as a result, the peace of God comes and flows into our hearts. And, and it's a peace that passes all understanding. It's a, it's a prayer walk with God where we're adoring and we're worshiping and we're always thankful for what God has given and not just what God has taken away. I, I believe that that was the key to the success of a man named Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. I believe that he had that kind of peace, not only in his prayer chamber, but when they cast him into the lion's den, he still maintained that peace. If you notice, he didn't freak out. He didn't flip out. He didn't uh, all of a sudden uh, start backing away from his prayer walk with God or his belief in Jehovah God. No, sir. He was a man of peace because he prayed rightly in times before the tribulation came into his life. But then in verse 8, we find, and this is point number B, we find right thinking. Not just right praying, but right thinking. What are you thinking about this morning? What, what are you thinking about when you leave the church house? These are the things, the principles that I believe um, are woven into the fabric of the Christian life. Because he says, I want you to think about things that are true. And where is truth found? Where is truth found? Truth is found in the word of God, isn't it? Truth is found in the Word of God. John chapter 17, verse 17. Truth is found in God Himself. God is the God of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Truth is found in Christ. Jesus Christ is true. Remember what He said in John chapter 14, verse 6? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, of course, it's found in the Holy Spirit himself, right? John chapter 16, verse 13. Because the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth and bring to remembrance the things that I have taught you. You see, the Holy Spirit will never teach us something that contradicts what God the Father said. He will never teach us something that contradicts what God the Son said. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit comprise one God and one truth. So Paul says, I want you to think on these things. I want you to think about what is true in the Word of God. I want you to be honest or venerable, which a word that means to be noble or worthy of respect, uh, to be a people that are sacred as opposed to profane. 
In other words, he's calling us to be different from the culture in which we exist. This is what produces peace. He says, I want you to think on things that are just. That means right or in harmony with God's standard of holiness. I want you to think about things that are pure. The things that are morally clean, morally undefiled. I want you to think on those things. That gets rid of a lot of the picture shows we would go to, a lot of the books we would read, a lot of the songs we would listen to, a lot of the things that we see in the world going on. Uh, there's a shield, there's a guard over our heart that says, that's not for me. That's not for me. Because I, I want to think about the right things. I love what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee. You see that? Whose mind is on the things of God, whose mind is upon the things that are true, the things that are honest, the things that are just. And then he says the things that are pure, that which is morally clean, um, the things that are lovely. Uh, and that word is, is an interesting word. study. It means pleasing or amiable, uh, being courteous and gracious. I want you to... I want you to Think upon these things, you see. Things that are of good report, highly regarded in reputation or witness. I want you to think about things that are virtuous, which is a word that means moral strength or fortitude. And that's what the gospel does. I, I believe it's, uh, it, it's something that fortifies our resolve to follow Christ. People that, uh, people that say they don't need the church or don't need the gospel, don't need the word, all of that, they're setting themselves up for failure because this is God's ordained means of fortifying you and your resolve to be Christians and praiseworthy, worthy of admiration. He says in verse 9, These things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now that's powerful to me. Here's a great promise that he makes to us as we ponder these things, as we strive to guard our hearts and minds against the defilement of the fallen world around us. So we're right praying and we're right thinking. And, and then, of course, that translates into the third point, C, right living. As we live for Christ, as we live for him, we live with him. And the closer we live for him, the closer we'll be with him. That, that, isn't that wonderful? See, this is God's way, God's method, God's manner of building his church. He's going to give us a view of his presence, a view of his peace. And then in verse 10, we begin our third point, God's power. You can't do it on your own. What I'm talking about, you cannot do it on your own. Because you have a base nature that gravitates toward the sinful. I'm telling you, all of us, uh, to go back to my illustration, will gravitate toward that chocolate donut. We gravitate toward it. And I know some, some of you are going to get on to me for using that illustration, but it's just an illustration. I'm just trying to show you the gravitivity of something that we know we shouldn't be doing. Well... 
How do we get there? Well, it's God's power. Verses 10 through 13 deals with that, right? But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at last your care of me hath flourished again. I'll explain that in a minute. Wherein ye were also careful that ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned whatsoever state I am in to be there with content. I know both how to abound and to be a bit. Uh, to be abased and I know how to be abound uh, to abound everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me you know it's interesting to me that verse verse 13 it's on the wall of my house I have a coffee cup with Philippians 4 13 um I go to the Christian bookstore and I see uh, cards, Philippians 4.13. But I never see one. I haven't yet seen one with Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Why? Here's the struggle in it. We can talk all day long about our strength being in Christ, but when it comes to the application of that strength in our life producing contentment, we avoid it. By nature, I, I think it's by nature. We avoid it. We avoid it. In other words, we want to go to the donut shop, as it were. But he says that, and he means that, and he's talking about God's power. He says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And I love the syntax of the Greek construction of that verse. Because when he says, I can do, he, that, that, that word is to have strength. All things through Christ which strengtheneth me, that is to pour power into. It, in, in other words, it's a continuum. This is something that he's doing day by day for those that are trusting in him. For those that are striving to live for his glory. He says, I'm not going to leave you without the ability uh, to, to exercise what I've commanded you to do. I'm not going to do that to you. It would be kind of like uh, uh, someone coming to uh, Brother Nicholas and saying, Brother Nicholas, I've got this uh, pretty F-150, and it's such a powerful, beautiful truck, and I want you to know, I, I, I want you to know it's all yours. And then not give him a key. Wouldn't that be mean? I think it would be plumb cruel to do something like that. But here's the point. The God of heaven has given you and I more than an F-150. He's given us eternal life. He, he's given us salvation. He's given us forgiveness of sin. And he's not going to withhold from you the key to contentment if you truly ask him for it and if you're striving for it we're going to apply the principles of right praying and right thinking and right living and we're going to be able to experience victory we're going to be ex able to experience the great gain of Christian contentment that means that whatever I go through, whatever our nation has to endure, whatever persecution or opposition comes against America uh, in these 
perilous and evil days, no matter what happens in my culture and in my world, Jesus Christ is my sufficiency. And I am satisfied with him. I can do all things. I can in, in, uh, endure all things through him that loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. So we need God's presence, don't we? We need God's peace and we need his power. But I don't want to miss his final point. I don't want to miss God's provision. God is our Jehovah Jireh. God is our provider. Listen to what he says to the church. And I want to say this to you, brothers and sisters, as the church here in Faulkner. He says, notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now, the word communicate there means to be a sharer or a partner, uh, someone that comes alongside of. Uh, another for the furtherance of the gospel he says uh, you did well you did well i believe we did well in 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 uh, helping uh, sister haley uh, go to peru I, I believe that's a good work because she did it in the name of christ you see i believe i believe you did well when you support the brothers that went to nicaragua you did well when you supported me when i went to the philippines and and Brother Nathan and I, when we went to Africa together, you did well. That, that's something that, that blesses the heart of God. Because you have sacrificially um, supported those efforts. Listen to him. He says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. You know why he said that? Because ten years before, ten years prior to his imprisonment, in his labors at Thessalonica, the church of Philippi sent financial aid to his ministry in Thessalonica. They did that on their own. He didn't, he didn't ask for it. He, he didn't beg for it. He didn't bargain for it. He didn't manipulate. He left it to God. God moved their heart. They supported his ministry in Thessalonica. And he says, even, and by the way, Paul never forgot that either. Even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again to my need. Not because I desire a gift. Listen to the heart of the minister. Listen to the heart of the true servant. Not, that, not because I wanted money from you. Not because I wanted financial gain from you. But I desire fruit that made abound to your account. The word fruit there is profit. I desire profitability to your account. I, I desire success to your church. I, de, I, I desire growth in your own lives through what you sacrifice for the Lord. You talk about contentment. I mean, when we're giving like we should and when we're living like we should and when we're praying like we should, we're going to find ourselves on the path to contentment. Listen carefully now. <laughs> My time is nearly up, but watch this. But I have all, Paul said, 
Here he is chained and in a Roman prison. I have all and abound. Hmm. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus, who was thought to be the pastor of the church of Philippi. I have received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It, it, it's amazing to me. It, it's amazing. Because when he's referring to the providence of God, he's saying, you know, God didn't just uh, provide me spiritual life. He didn't just provide me eternal life. He also provides for me in my physical life. Can we testify to that? Has God provided for you? Hmm? Have you been without? Somebody says, well, there's something that I wanted that I didn't get. And I'm mad at God because I didn't get it. Listen to what David said in Psalm 23. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If I don't have it, it's because the shepherd thinks I don't need it. Amen? See, that's, that's where contentment comes from. It, it's not bemoaning what I don't have. It's rejoicing in what I do have. And when I have Christ, I have it all. <laughs> Hallelujah. He says, this is what I want you to know. I want you to know that your sacrifice is not going unnoticed. Uh, what we do for God is what really counts. I'm just telling you the truth, brothers and sisters, and you know I'm telling you the truth. My God shall supply. Listen to it carefully. Sister Wanda, you need this this morning. He shall supply every need. <laughs> He's going to do it. He promised according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, He says, unto the God and our Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice His doxology. Notice His doxology. He's praising doxology. It is in response to the gracious character and the faithfulness of God. He says, I want you to salute every saint in Jesus. I'm going I'm to close with this. Watch this. Watch this. Yeah, no charge for this. Watch this. I want you to salute every saint, every believer that's in the church at Philippi. And the brethren which are with me uh, uh, also greet you. You know, brethren, I believe uh, he lists those brethren in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and it, it in, included uh, uh, Timothy. He says, the brethren that are with me greet you, but don't miss this verse. All the saints, that, that's believers, all the saints salute you chiefly. They that are of Caesar's household. Whoa, wait a minute. Let's get some historical context here. Who's the emperor of Rome at this point? Nero. Caesar Nero. He, he, he's the kook. He, he's, he's a crazy man. He's the one that built, built, uh, burnt down half the city of Rome and blamed it on Christians. That guy. He's the Caesar. 
And Caesar has a palace. And in the palace, he's got cooks. He's got cleaners. He's got window washers. He's got every kind of uh, uh, employment you can have because it's a huge palisade. I mean, it's a huge facility. And in that facility, he's got what's called a praetorium where he keeps special political prisoners. And God in his providence brought the greatest preacher outside of Jesus Christ that ever lived and put him right in the middle of that palisade. Caesar's house herald. Well, while, while Paul was there, he must have shut his mouth because he knew it was going to get rough if he, if he defended Christ, if, if he defended the truth, if he, if he uh, uh, didn't compromise his Christian virtue. Uh, surely this madman, Nero was a madman, he was going to kill me. Why? That's why he didn't, he didn't open his mouth. Oh, no. Just because he was there in, in that evil, evil uh, condition, it didn't stop him from proclaiming the truth of Christ. As a result, remember Paul was there two years. As a result, when Paul gets around to writing this letter from the Roman prison to the church of Philippi, there were converts in the very house of one of the most wicked emperors that ever lived in human history. He, he was vile. But that didn't stop Paul from sharing the truth. That didn't stop Paul from being content with the providence of God. He, he leaned on it. He rested in it. And as a result, he was content. I have learned. Paul didn't have it naturally, neither do you and I. But he says, I've gone through so much, I've learned. That in whatever condition or circumstance I find myself in, to be there with content. Because why, Paul? Because I live in the presence of God because I know the peace of God because I am uh, walking in the power of God Himself and I'm trusting in God's sovereign providence over my life. And brothers and sisters, if you and I, by God's grace, if you and I can go through the same steps in our lives, we'll also be able to learn contentment. Thank you for your good attention.